0: The following is part of our Framework for Trust programme at FACT Liverpool. This programme considers how our 2021 artists in residence think about trust and the relationship it has to their work. This programme is supported by the EU-funded Horizon 2020 project, Arts Formation. More information and the rest of our Framework for Trust programme can be found at FACT.co.uk
1: Good afternoon, Um, my name is Maitri Maheshwari, I am a woman of Indian origin. I'm sitting in a white room with uh, black and red pictures behind me. got black hair, uh, brown skin, and my hair's got sort of a green streak through it, and I'm wearing a red T-shirt this today. Um, just wanted to kind of describe myself before we get going. Um, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us for the second live stream discussion as part of the Transform Summit, which is a collaborative event uh, organised with VAG Foundation in the Netherlands, and Transmediale in Germany, and which is part of the Arts Formation Research Project that has been funded by European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Grant. This second session, Performing Trust, forms part of FACT's current framework for trust program of events and online resources developed by artists currently working in residence at FACT. Through conversation, meditation, and storytelling, each of the artists' interventions examines the processes of making art, especially in the digital context, what it means to build trust and exchange ideas with an institution participants and others remotely our conversation today is the first event organized in relation to jack tan's year-long residency within facts board of trustees the residency exists within but alongside the board with the artist given the freedom and scope to approach that forum and questions of governance from their own perspective through this through this residency jack will invite the board of trustees at fact to consider the qualities of boardness as a performance and a sculpture, and how we might shift our understanding of governance as a creative and inclusive platform. Today's conversation takes us at starting point, the question of what is trust from the word trustee, um, and how is trust understood and enacted within an organization between staff, trustees, funders, artists, and audiences? The larger question perhaps is about who culture and the institutions tasked with creating, presenting, and preserving it is for. Too many people in our society do not see themselves reflected adequately or accurately in the culture that our institutions present. What role can the governance of an institution play in shaping an organization's purpose and building trust with those it serves? In the midst of the global pandemic and other systemic and planetary crises, the cultural landscape itself has changed. The nature and purpose of communications has become more overtly self-promotional or self-preserving questions of trust within a digital context take on a very different urgency with regards to the reliability or trustworthiness of anything we encounter. So I'm delighted and honoured that we're joined today to discuss these concerns by Rachel Hyam, who amongst many other things is also the Chair of FACT Board of Trustees, and by Jane Wentworth, who amongst many other things is the founder of Jane Wentworth Associates. Um, I'd like to start by asking each of the speakers to introduce themselves, um, and then I'm going to start us off with a few questions. There is a chat with the live stream, so do please share your thoughts and questions as we go. I'm going to hand over to Jack first.
0: I just un under- oh. to myself. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jack Tan and I am an artist working at the intersection of art and law and I am the artist-in-residence on FACS Board of Trustees this year. I uh, Just to uh, you describe myself, I am a man of Chinese descent with short black hair. I am wearing a set of headphones and I'm, sit- I'm also wearing a, a kind of Navy blue garden overshirt is what I'm wearing, uh, and uh, I'm sitting in my studio. in In the background is a bit of a mess, uh, but is a uh, in my background there is a very colourful uh, uh, what do you call that uh, screen. screen? Yes, it's a screen. Yes, uh, painted by a wonderful artist called Luke Burton, uh, and then just um, Lots of stuff in the background, which is nice to hear.
1: And I'm going to hand over... Do you want to say anything else? I'm going to hand over to Jane.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, No, no, that's fine. Yeah. (laughs) Hand over to Jane.
2: Okay. Hello, everyone. It's really good to be here. I wish I was there in person, actually, because I love Liverpool so much. But um, about me, I am a woman of quite advanced years um, with white hair to prove it Uh, and I'm sitting on the top floor of a house in Islington uh, with that board behind me if you can see it, is hiding a lot of mess, I'm just not as brave as Jack to actually display it Um, I've got very big bold glasses and I'm wearing a black t-shirt with a leopard print shirt underneath it And I've just noticed that I've got a leopard print coat hanging up in the background, which gives away the fact that I'm really just hiding or channeling my bet, my bet animation street uh, penchant for leopard skin. Um, So I think that's that's probably gives you a funny enough picture of what I look like. Um, I. As I actually said, I started, Jane went with Associates a long time ago, about 20 years ago, with a view to helping uh, cultural organisations to articulate their brand. Uh, and that, of course, does mean to some extent brand means visual identity and marketing and all that sort of external stuff. But it also, I think, very importantly, means what the organisation is, how it's perceived, how it behaves and how its staff are able to uh, build the brand, if you like. Uh, so that's really what I try to do, um, is to help people think about where they're going, uh, what they do, how they describe what they do, what their values are, and perhaps most importantly of all, why they're doing it. What, what is the purpose of this organization? Um, and that that's those four elements really make up what I would call the brand strategy. And I'm more than happy to talk more about it if you're interested, but I think that's probably enough for the moment. Um, so I'll hand over to Rachel. Hi everyone, so
3: to describe me, I'm um, a white British woman, i sort of 40ish, I say. <laughs> I'm uh, tall uh, with short brown, increasingly white, Uh, spiky hair that people often describe as my brand for some reason. Um, It's definitely my most distinguishing feature, I think. Um, I'm wearing a a pink top, pink glasses, uh, and I'm in my lovely office in the New Forest um, filled with uh, all the books that have inspired me and many objects of art and uh, reminders of uh, great trips and memories around me just to inspire me every day. Outside of my... um, I have the great privilege of being the the chair of the board of trustees at FACT, a role I've held for the last four years. Uh, I've been on the arts charity boards for around 14 years in total, previously sitting on the boards of the Blue Coat in Liverpool and Creative Folks in Kent. And now I also sit on the board of Macmillan, the UK cancer charity. Outside of my board roles, I'm the chief information officer for WPP, uh, which means I lead the technology organisation for the world's largest creative transformation company. I've been a technology leader for about 25 years. I've worked for companies like HSBC, Marks & Spencer, Vodafone, and BT. And in those roles, I've led and been part of a large number of governance committees overseeing investments, technology choices, risks, cybersecurity, and diversity and inclusion. And I think at the very heart of all of those topics sits trust, how we build and nurture it, uh, react when it's damaged, and respond to the changing nature of it. So I'm really looking forward to exploring trust in the conversation
1: today. thank you so much um this is a very useful beginning and rachel that's actually kind of laid laid quite a lot of the groundwork for the first question i was going to ask which which is really to establish a, i think a sense of what trust means to to each of you what does look like um, and how do you build trust and i think i want to start with jack in part because um the context of our conversations over the last year and Mm -hmm. year or so have been entirely online Um, and jack even though you and i had met many many years ago i don't think either of us really remember the fact that we'd met and how does how does how does one build trust uh, without any of the kind of the sort of um the visual cues that one might experience from a from a sort of physical relationship with someone so um thinking through particularly in the digital context what trust looks like um, and, and Jack, I know that you've done a lot of work recently in this space. Um, so it'd be really great to start with you, and then I'll ask Rachel and Jane to answer the same question about what does trust look like and how do you build it.
0: So I think um, uh, so. To, to, to working backwards, uh, trusting trust in a digital context. I must say that I'm one of these people who have techno joy. I overtrust the digital in a way. I mean, being sort of like growing up in the 80s and 90s, I'm a kind of like techno, early techno adopter. Uh so almost like I have like it's maybe really bad. I just like new technologies come and I'm like, yes, let's let's use it. You know, my Facebook Profile. I think it's like 12 years old or something. I mean it's like really old. I mean, and I remember like um all those like my MySpace and all those really old um, technologies which I adopted. And and I think there's this kind of so digital trusting the digital isn't a problem for me, but I really should learn to distrust it in a way because something about digital aesthetics uh kind of takes over my my eyes um and i need to kind of remember there are other forms of 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 seeing shall we say um but for me what is trust um i think maybe broadly i can think of three areas of how i have to work with trust at the moment um, one is um as an artist how i negotiate trusting my practice and Trusting material that I work with, um, I think being an artist is a very precarious uh, uh, thing to be, and it's always a negotiation of um, should I, should I keep being an artist or not? Uh, should I trust should I trust the work uh, because it's um, it's very precarious? I mean, shouldn't I just go and get a job really and just give this up? It might be easier really. Um, so i think there's that thing of pursuing one's practice and learning to keep learning to trust it uh in order to keep going secondly is then from the arts institute from the art work is for me about how and whether i should trust arts institutions because they are naturally um supporting me or in the way uh, uh, of being an artist so uh, it's about learning which institutions to trust whether whether i can trust the ecosystem or not and then in a much wider sense it's about trusting society for me uh, as somebody who i kind of feel like i'm a bit of an exile from my own home country uh, as a, as an artist uh, feeling like i um need to find the, the, the society whose social contract that i trust and that I'm happy to live and work in and for me that is Scotland at the moment so uh, those those things but I'm sure we'll we'll kind of um, pick up on those in the later conversations that's what trust is for me okay
1: um can I ask the same question of, of Rachel
3: sure yeah so I think about my charity role um I think about how as chair and as a board member and how we as a collective of board members are almost the guardians of trust, for fact, with all of its stakeholders, whether it's the audience that comes into our buildings, our funders, uh the charity commission, the arts council are kind of govern and, and and have an oversight role over us, the general public will just come in, and use our cafe. Um Uh, and our staff and on our assets so you know as a board member you have a deep sense of of governorship over um all those those relationships and components and, and the way to execute governorship over that is is through building trust with all of those different stakeholder sets you know giving them absolute confidence that you're working in their best interests that you're protecting those interests and the assets that help you deliver your outcomes. And a really important role of any board is to um, make sure that the charity is delivering its outcomes, as described in their mission and objectives, doing what it says it will do for its beneficiaries. Um, How you therefore build trust is, is I think, through transparency, is by being really clear about why you exist, who for, Uh, what your outcomes are going to be, and then delivering on those and being transparent about how you're delivering on those, where you are doing well, where you're not doing so well, and what you're going to do about that. Um, I think it's also really important to make sure you're really transparent around the principles uh, of how you operate as an organisation. How do you think about ethics, about diversity and inclusion? What's your policy for whistleblowing and safeguarding? Uh, You know, people want to raise a matter where they don't feel, where they feel you are breaking that trust uh, equation down. Um, I think what we've been doing with Jack is starting to have some open discussions, exploring trust and how it manifests with different stakeholders. And I love that technique of of actually having an open discussion and almost co-creating a contract or a framework for trust with our different stakeholders, rather than just assuming we're building it because we've got some form of relationship. Um, and then I think as a board, you have to um, set the boundaries and the guardrails for the organization. You know, where where are the clear lines that you don't want to cross on any on any topic, whether it be ethics or the use of data uh, or the experience we provide our audience or the development we provide our team, uh, for example. And then finally, you have to be open to, to having really responsive feedback loops. So when you do get... You have to watch the signals. Uh, you, you, you may be told uh, certain things aren't where they need to be in that trust dynamic. And you have to then show absolute responsiveness, empathy, listening and, and action to make sure that you, you recover from, from whatever damage that, that might have been caused by that. So That's how I think about trust
1: in, in the charity context. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on you a bit later to talk a bit more about the kind of corporate and innovation mm-hmm. side of things as well. But um, we've, we've got a journey to get to before we get through to that. Um Jane, I suppose the same question for you, and I and I, I wonder whether that it takes on a slightly different dimension when you're thinking about sort of brand and values and and building building trust within something that is already something that's quite abstracted.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, I guess just before I cover that one, I'd like to say that I think in, in a bigger context personally, I think trust starts when you are a child, of course, because you trust your parents to look after you and to feed you and, and to be fair with you and, and all those things. And and many of the problems that many of us have with families and things is that trust starts to erode and, and, and that that makes life difficult. Um, but the good thing about talking about trust and or not necessarily the word but bringing trust into the equation as with children as you become a parent is that it's the only way you can allow them freedom is to is to give is to trust them not to screw up basically and not to do what they shouldn't do and you're bound to make mistakes of course you do make mistakes and kids do terrible things and you have to get round that um but then as you get older um you find that that you're then allowed to do things and you're in a position of authority in in business say uh, so to come to your point really Maitri, when when i'm working in an organization um i we have to find out what the organization is about what's working what's not working We have to get people to be really honest and we need to talk to people from the top to the bottom of the organization. I've worked with a few organizations who have said, oh, yeah, yeah, we've done our brand. You know, we we know what our values and our vision and everything is. And I said, well, all the people I've talked to don't seem to know any of that. Oh, well, we didn't really share it with them. We just did it with the with the trustees and and the uh, executive team. And that's a really common mistake. I think you have to talk to everybody, as many people as you possibly can. And, of course, in order to do that, it has to be completely confidential because no one's going to tell you what they really think if they don't believe that they can trust you not to share it with everybody. So one of the things we have to do is win the trust of the organisation right at the beginning, not only that we know how to do the job and we hope they believe that, or they wouldn't give us the job. But um, more importantly, that they, the the senior management team, or whoever it is, really needs to understand that we will dig deep, and that we will uncover some stuff. Uh, and if they're not prepared to do that, then I usually walk away from the job because I don't think you can. I don't think you can change an organisation or make an organisation. Uh, perform at its best if you aren't totally honest about what's what's good and what's not so good Uh, and you have to face up to that and only when you do that can you then say all right well if if we're great at this and we're rubbish at that what kind of values would we need to um, to live in order to move ourselves to a better place Um, so I think I think that's really important and just to reiterate that Rachel said um, I think that uh, transparency is absolutely crucial uh, because I've worked with lots of lots of arts organisations, little tiny ones, you know, little little dance companies and theatres, um, but also big institutions like the V&A and Tate and, and the Smithsonian in DC. Uh, and <clears throat> I think you really you really need to make sure that that people. Are transparent about why they're making decisions why they're doing this work why have they got this consultant coming in you know, people are very deeply sometimes with, with good reason they're deeply suspicious about consultants you know because they're thinking <clears throat> why especially in the arts why are we spending money on consultants when we could be spending money on the art or, or on our, on raising our salary so you have to take quite a lot of flack from people but you, if you can win their trust and you can see that you're doing it for them, not necessarily for for the chief executive, and that things can be better for them if you give them the chance to speak up. You you are on the journey to to making it a healthier and more a more
1: productive organisation. I think it, it's interesting that you say that in in part because I think when when we last spoke. Um, there was something kind of really interesting that came up about trustworthiness, and, <laughs> and this idea that maybe we we're quicker and easier to trust negative motivations from people. That you can mm-hmm. kind of see where someone's doing something, and you're like, I don't. Their 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 instinct is bad, but I trust that the I trust them because they're not hiding their bad instincts, um, or their their sort of tendency towards being a little bit um, a little bit evil. Um, it's easier to believe. Um, in someone 's bad motivations than it is to believe that someone is trustworthy and 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 good and i and I guess one of those things that i 'm interested in getting to when we 're talking about governance is our kind of skepticism towards um the motivations of institutions um the motivations of um why systems work in the way that they do um and who you know again this question about who is it for who are the beneficiaries of 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 the trust that we we place both in um the organizations that 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 we're all part of but also um you know the kind of broader sort of people that this this is this is actually for so when we're, we're you know we're not serving ourselves and yet there is a sense that maybe everything is for our own benefit and not necessarily for a public benefit um yeah. so, so i, I th- I'm, I'm kind of curious to think about where that sense of erosion has come from mm-hmm. uh, what where where that sort of mistrust stems from why it's easier to believe that people's intentions are, are not good
3: <laughs> I wonder with institutions whether it's because the um the the boards and the executives of those institutions very often don't reflect the beneficiaries they're serving. Um I think if you think about most beneficiaries of of arts organizations for example a lot of them are at the time poor or economically poor uh, or have other challenges they're facing and so the very beneficiaries we're trying to serve don't have the resources to be able to volunteer. And become board members, protecting the needs uh, of of the very beneficiary group that they 're part of. Um, I think some organizations have tried to establish shadow boards where um, they do get a representative group of beneficiaries together who don 't meet quite as frequently who meet in a less formal setting um, but the very fact that they're shadow boards means that they're secondary and subservient to the actual board that is governing and setting the direction of the arts organization. Um, they don't have the same accountabilities or decision making rights as a result. So, even trying to compensate and have shadow boards, you're almost reinforcing the problem <laughs> and that gap. And therefore, yeah. that lack of understanding and that trust. And I think secondly, there's there's a I think organizations really struggle with helping boards build that full picture of of the vision of the beneficiaries and what you're serving, of the risks. and um, Because boards can't be involved in the everyday transactions and minutiae running the organization. That's not their role. But in a sense, they need some of that to take that view of how best to protect an organization. And also set its strategy. Um, so there is there is a, there's a
2: fundamental structural problem <laughs> around the idea of boards, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to... on that subject. Uh, so, sorry, Maitrisha, can I just no, no, can in carry, in? carry on? No. Um, is that working in America, the boards are very different. Because they're all expected to pay lots of money to be on the board. You know, you can't be on a board of an arts institution in the States unless you're prepared to sort of fork out a million dollars a year, uh, which of course makes the transaction really diff- different. Our boards tend to be the great and the good, or they're not so great and the good. But um, most people on boards in in the UK, I think, are there because hopefully. Now it's becoming much more diverse, and and you you have people there because of what they stand for, or what they're good at, or what the board needs. Whereas it used to just be people with with letters after their name or titles or something. It's not so much like that anymore. I'm pleased to say. Um, but I I think I think the gap between the board tell and the and the executive tells you a lot about the organisation. If it's if it's quite close. And if they respect each other and they want to be involved in the sort of work that we're doing, in other words, you know, what are the values? What should the vision be? What is our sense of purpose? If the board are really involved in that, then it's going to work much better than if they just turn up. And a lot of I'm on quite a few boards or was I'm not doing so much of that now. But I think you you can find yourself sitting on a board where you think you're there to contribute something. But you're not actually contributing anything because all they really want to talk about is the bottom line and the spreadsheets and everything, which is a to me. Um, but it's it, it depends very much on how good the chair is, I suppose. Uh, but I, I I really just wanted to make the point about Americans uh, being very different um, in the way they the way they the whole management and and governance of organisations. It's really different different in America, and of course in Europe, over there, Europe. I know we're still geographically part of Europe. Um, they they tend not to have boards in the way that we do. Um, it tends to all sit at the senior management level, which is quite again quite different. Sorry, I interrupted you, Maitri. You were asking Jack something.
1: No, I, I, I actually I was going to come. I was going to come come around in circles to everyone. So, Jack.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was just um, yeah, Jane. That's so fascinating because I think it feels like what you're describing. My my hunch is about how the the charity scene in America is is kind of um, folded into philanthropy uh, and and kind of demonstrations of social standing uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that kind of it is kind of problematic because like like how do you then uh, um get a board that reflects uh the community that you're meant to be serving uh and i think for me that's that's um i, I think that's not um that's a problem here too i think a lot of boards don't reflect uh community that yeah. they're serving and and i think we we kind of we 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 have less of a philanthropy problem, but we still have that kind of great and the good problem uh, left over from empire. I think that question, Maitri, about um, about where has the erosion come from? Um, I do you know um, it's really hard because before I became an artist, um, I was doing quite a fair amount of civil rights uh, casework. Um, so working um, following on from the Stephen Lawrence uh, inquiry uh, and the Zahid Mubarak inquiry and the Victoria Climbié inquiry. So what what is a problem for me is that I I, I don't necessarily come from a starting point of their um, their seeing a, a place before erosion. I feel like it's already. You know, the starting point is the erosion. I mean, uh, I was a I was a child. Um, my mum owned a haberdashery shop in Brixton Market in 1981 when the riots broke out. Right, so I mean, it was it's like oh my my goodness. Um, so I begin with an eroded landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, often so it's about oh what do I do? How do I survive this um, this situation? I, I think for me it's a lot to do with. How do you build trust with an institution when you think that institution is unwittingly and systemically racist, sexist, classist, transphobic, etc., etc., etc.? Right, the institution itself can't, can't be trusted to to identify uh, its own um, structural inequality, and if you are a member of uh, uh, a community that is suffering from that inequality, then how do you deal with this institution? Uh, so the, so, so often it's sort of like, that, those are the questions. In the last few months, actually, that I've been meeting quite a lot of young artists, um, or a lot of young artists from, um, uh, shall we say, uh, backgrounds that have a protector characteristic, mm-hmm. um, I have not. I've not met one so far, anecdotally in my experience, that hasn't been harmed by an institution. Uh, so, um, h- how how do we create institutions that purportedly support these artists, but then somehow unwittingly these the institutions harm them? Uh, mm. And so, then how do we begin to have a conversation with young young artists to to build trust again? Uh, when they don't trust the rebuilding process itself, do you see what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Where do we begin? You know.
1: I mean that that's a that's a huge question, and I suppose part of that comes down to whether or not there is a capacity to for things for for us to change the values that something stands for. So, I, mean, I think we see it a lot in the corporate sector where you have um, big corporations that. For example, um, God, just to pick an example off the top of my head, something like Shell, um, where they are a petroleum company, but all of their advertising is about green energy. It's about sort of trying to change the narrative and become this sort of more sort of environmentally conscious, sustainable brand. Um, Mm -hmm. um, The vast majority of us would approach that with a huge grain of salt and a degree of skepticism and say, actually, how realistic is that? but if we're always going to be hanging on to the old values of something um or what we believe to be the old values of something is there any opportunity for someone to change can a leopard actually change its spots
0: yeah so there's a question i actually have for jane and for rachel actually because we talked a lot about transparency Mm. um so like i think it's it's probably possible to be transparent within the organization, so like within board and staff, or even to be transparent between board organization and a contracted consultant. But what about processes where um, a trust has been lost between the institution and a stakeholder, like the community? How, and, and essentially the public, right? But they are the stakeholder public. So how can you then be transparent with that group, you know, uh, because it's actually, in a sense, you have to be transparent to your processes with the public, basically. Mm.
2: I think it's about listening. I think people don't listen very well. Um, uh, You know, they, I find this, you know the, a lot of organisations are you especially the arts organisations you know where you go in there and you say well what are you really trying to do and that more often than not they'll say oh we're putting the audience at the heart of everything we do everything is audience driven it, it wasn't like that some years ago it was probably more like it's the collection that's the centre of everything or or sometimes if you're lucky the artist is the centre of everything but that's rather unusual um but <clears throat> They don't, they don't really listen to what the audience is saying, I don't think. they do. They, a lot of them make gestures, you know, putting postcards up on the wall and saying, what do you think of this show? And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a start. It's a good thing to do. But I think it has to be much more active than that. And in order to change people's perceptions, whatever the brand is, whether it's a Mars bar that used to be this big and is now this big but it costs twice much. um if you aren't fulfilling the promise of the brand um people are not that stupid they they will they'll suss you out and then they won't believe in you anymore so you have to change the reality if you want to change the perception um and that that's really what what we're trying to do is finding out what the perception is and saying well why do people think that why have they lost trust in you why are you alienating people um, and then you then you are, you find that out from the public, and then you bring it back in and say, "Well, what do we do differently in order not to make that the case?" Um, which I suppose is another way of saying transparency. Really, uh, it's owning up, uh, owning up to to things you haven't done very well, like you know, for instance, the, all the trouble that many museums are having at the moment about um, you know the whole <clears throat> sort of. Uh, Colonialist, colonialist history and the, you know, the fact that the money's coming from slave owners and statues are put up, you know, uh, uh, lauding these people. Uh, and they're having, they're having to really make some big, tough decisions about, well, do we, do we just get out there and, and strip off and say, sorry, Mayor Culper, you know, but we are trying to sort it out. We are trying to listen. We are trying to do something about it. Or do you just sweep it under the carpet and hope it'll go away? um obviously <laughs> the latter is not recommended but i think that's still happening a lot
1: yeah i i think it's it's one of those things where um, there is a, a sort of a real sense of inertia and anxiety about change um what does how how do you propel change um and how do you overcome uh, the anxiety to to push change forward, um, mm. and, and this is also one of the questions around around trust. When when we trust certain institutions or we trust certain um, sources, um, how do we then open open our um, open up our ourselves to trusting things that are different? Um, how do we yeah. look at things like that are unfamiliar and find uh, opportunities um, to, to to trust those and find ways into trusting those. Um, and what does what does a kind of relationship to difference look like? Um, yeah, we've um, we've been talking about this a lot in the yeah. context of diversity,
3: equity, and inclusion recently at uh, at Macmillan. Um, how do you have a conversation about the uncomfortable? Um, around things that are as personal as your own biases towards difference, uh, and what are some of the mechanisms we create to broker a conversation about difference, but also to to move beyond and past it? Um, and actually, you know technology can help in this space. There, there are many technologies now that can be used to give you a chance to walk in someone else 's shoes, to experience what they experience, to feel what they feel in certain situations. Um, So using gaming or augmented or virtual reality to mimic the experience of someone else, build empathy and therefore uh, build trust and close that gap in understanding um, of that difference. So that's an interesting area to explore. Mm.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about, about trust is that like, um how do institutional procedures um work with work to build trust? Because I find so far that institutional procedures don't aren't very helpful. So with organizations like so with, for example, I have been involved in this um campaign to defund the Center for Chinese Contemporary Art in Manchester, um, where it's because there's been a breach of, of trust, a huge breach of trust. Um, and there's now, they publish an independent report really that um, kind of uh, uh, um, confirms confirms our campaign in, in, in many ways, although ignores our campaign at the same time. Um, and um, uh, so there, there are questions there about how, um, when, when there are breaches of trust, um, especially with the center for for contemporary art, Chinese center for contemporary art, um, uh, we're told to use complaint procedures, or we're told to we're told it's uh, they, they can't breach confidentiality, or there are kind of institutional methodologies. And um, protocols procedures that are a kind of bureau- bureaucratization of the grievance um, which 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 is a form of of kind of um, not only depersonalizing it but actually sucking it up at sucking it dry from its um, rich emotional or narrative content um and so um and it also like with with this campaign, it involved bringing in um, consultants that we never agreed to uh, the published publication of an audit report that we don't trust, even even though a lot of it uh, uh, verifies what we said. we kind of think, mm, not sure about that not not that we we disagree with um, the content of the report, but you know, what are they going to do with it? You know, so is, is a report another form of forgetting? Um, so there are all these kinds of questions about how the protocols for dealing with complaints or dealing with grievances or the protocols and procedures created for creating trust aren't to be trusted. Uh, and those are kind of, uh, yeah, for me, it's the question of, of how do we even do that? You know, like, you know, like Jane, when you said, like, okay, it's, 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 uh, institutions have to listen. Then it's like, how does the institution demonstrate that it's listening properly? You know, because we don't trust the institution's ears. You know, because they've they have a track record of not listening. So how do you begin to trust them that they're listening in the first place? You know, yeah,
2: yeah, <laughs> a good good question. But I think that's where a consultant can help uh, because the consultant can. Cons- can hold them up to to what they're being accused of, if you like, and sometimes that that's coming from their own staff, not necessarily from from people outside. It could could easily be that there, are, in fact, many experiences of of staff who are trying to be heard, but they're just not being heard by by the executive, um, and they're using they're using, I think, rather out. Outdated or, or, perhaps only partially relevant things like key performance indicators, you know, to judge whether somebody's any good or not. Whereas in fact, it's much more about developing the person. Making the, you've got a, an organisation where every person is being the best person they can in that in that role for that job, and is able to sort of be much more holistic in in the way they do their job. Uh, doing things like, um, utilizing skills that they may not have in their job description, but it's, they're just bloody good at it. So go and help another team that needs somebody who speaks Ukrainian or, you know, somebody who actually knows how to build a shelf, you know, those sorts of things bring people together. And when, when people feel trusted, which of course also means that the managers have to let go, and take a risk on that person they may not be able to do it they may they may screw up but you have to take a considered risk to let them have a go and be there to catch them if they fail um but when they do well then you then they feel great and people feel that they are being trusted to and they are empowered to do their job without having to ask permission all the time or without having somebody insisting on seeing every draft of everything um, at every stage um, there, there is research and I'm not particularly scientific about these things but that there is some research that shows that, that when organisations are trusted and people feel trusted it, it, rele- it releases some sort of feel good chemical that makes people more amenable to working together um, and, and much more able to, to be efficient because they are actually enjoying it and they want they're not just waiting for the end of the day when they can go to the pub or whatever they're actually thinking this is really good fun i like doing what i'm good at and i love working with other people and that's yeah. I think one of the main reasons why trust is so important because it, it's good for us
0: yeah i was going to say that um one of the things that institutions do through procedures and policy is to disembody uh the grievance right so because for yeah. me trust is a kind of bodily thing it's about um, uh, creating a kind of haptic relationship, not just a not just an intellectual one. Because, like, we just did this blacksmithing weekend, right, where we were thinking about the relationship between blacksmithing and uh, governors. I was I was emailing you both about it, three of you yeah. about it. And one of the things that that the blacksmithing weekend that we thought about was trust as well, which was how, you know, like four people at, at two four years, how you kind of work and choreograph yourselves is to do with understanding and trusting each other's competence in a bodily way to keep each other from harm and from yourself from harm and from being burnt. And that kind of bodily understanding, I think, gets lost in organisational protocols, um, especially if it's somebody who's got a problem, you know, or has lost trust in the organisation. Because, and in that sense, I kind of feel like... Um, organizations need to um, reach out and re-establish haptic relationships with people, like bodily relationships with people. It doesn't matter what you say, it's about how you relate, you know, person to person, or body to body, and how does then, you know, how does the organization then become a body, you know, and not just become Mm -hmm. a set of protocols, how does it have, be enfleshed, so that it can begin to relate. And for me jane i think what you said was true which is that organized that somebody has to start trusting somebody's got to take the risk and just start trusting and for me like i just feel like because the institutions <laughs> are the ones in power and have more power they're the ones who have to start trusting you know, they're the ones who have to start being yeah. transparent first
1: i've got a couple of things i just wanted to bring up while, we, while you were talking one of them was while you were talking about haptics jack i was thinking well trust is actually such a visual thing that we 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 you know we we you know you believe your eyes um you know you you trust what you see and and actually what part of i think what's happened is that we um people talk and they kind of say certain things and what you were saying jane is that you don't trust people are actually listening properly and it's because you don't see the actions that follow from it so mm-hmm. actually it's that thing where the listening then translates into something that is visible and can and and is enacted upon, yeah. um, and it comes back to this idea that trust is something that's performed, um, and and what does what does the performance of trust do when it is you know how how does it move beyond simply being going through the motions of of performing trust to something that is authentic, um, mm-hmm. and what does that authenticity look like, um, and I guess the caveat to that is then also. Um, can you be risk-taking and authentic in that risk-taking? Um, you know, how do you create those safe spaces where risk can be taken and you can, you know, you can, you can do the risk of trusting something? Yeah, risk-taking I... and innovation
3: is an experimentation that is a really interesting topic. And for people to do that well and freely, you have to create an environment of trust Uh, around the the whole practice and process and actually just remove practice and process entirely because it needs to be freeform. Now working for a creative company in my uh, corporate world, Um, it's fascinating the process our creatives go through to create a media outcome. Um, And I'm, I'm sort of stealing techniques from that world to bring into my technology organization to help my technologists experiment more, take more risk, innovate more but you've got to have that conversation where you overtly say, I want you to take risk here. I want you to experiment here. And I've stolen a, an idea from Cirque du Soleil. Um, they have an idea of when they're practicing one of their very complex acrobatic routines. They're in the learning zone and they can push the boundaries and they can take risks and they can fall. And they can drop things and there'll be no consequence. It's all part of the learning process. But when the lights go up the curtains come back and they're on stage they're in the performance zone and therefore there's, there should be less risk taking we're looking for flawless execution to give the audience the experience they're looking for so now in my corporate world i'm signaling areas where i want performance zone level of thinking so protecting our assets through cybersecurity. i don't be experimenting madly there because i need to keep our assets and our data safe but actually if i'm coming up for a new solution for how we share knowledge around the organization I say, we're in the learning zone here, go for it, you know, feel free, there's, there's there's no boundaries to our thinking, we'll give you the resources we need, no idea is a bad idea, here's some great tools you can play with, and off you go. And we've embraced a technique called design thinking, which comes from product development and the creative world, where you co-create, you co-design, you get the, the most diverse group of people you can together to do that. Uh, you come up with the problem statements and solution hypotheses. You create post types, you get feedback uh, and come up with you know, move towards a solution together before you start to, to scale it. And I think what design thinking does is it builds trust because it's a really broad, diverse set of people who define the problem first and then come up with a solution because of all the testing and feedback that you do. And, um, you know, when you deliver something to your end user, they, they will trust what they're receiving because they've been part of defining it and testing it exactly. all along the way. So there's just a couple of techniques we're using to help build safe spaces, encourage experimentation and uh, and, and build that, that trust wrap that
2: needs to go around it. But that's why I think that involving the organization as fully as possible in developing the brand strategy like where are we going what are our values how do we talk about what we do and and why are we doing what's the difference we want to make to the world if if everybody's involved in that you in a safe space like a workshop say you know where you can do what you like you you can dance around you can cut things up you can build stuff you can perform things but you know that after you've, after you've had your playtime, you have to make it work uh, and you have to be realistic. You know, some people would say, I wish, I wish our, our department was much more diverse. Well, that's a really good wish. It's an absolutely valid thing to want. But you have to think through, well, how do you make that happen? You can't just do it like that. You have to, it, it's a really complex process um and there are of course there are many many other things of of how you do things but i do think having people involved in the in the creation of the brand strategy means that they they are bought into it right from the start um and they can challenge things that don't work and then when you've got values for example uh you you use those values when you're making decisions about something else you can you know, you can be having one of your sort of design thinking sessions, perhaps, um, and then you say, "Well, if one of our values is being courageous or being kind, um, how how do we build that into the solution?" Mm-hmm. Um, and what's well, lovely about the design thinking
3: process is it starts with those values and those motivations yes. at the beginning. You test your solution against them every step of the way. Exactly. Um, I love you the word do. you in, and you said play. I think mm-hmm. play is an important part of creating a safe environment. We actually have used kits from Lego that are mm-hmm. built for the corporate world and for design thinking sessions. So you model your yeah. problem, with your solution in Lego, which gets people thinking in a very different way because they go back to their childhood and the mechanics of play. Uh, yeah. I think that's a, that's a
2: fantastic way to start to create yeah. a safe space. It, it ties back into what you were saying, Jack, about the hapticness of trust. You mm-hmm. know, I've done many workshops where people, I've said to them, you know, put your pens, pencils and your notepads away. Here's, here's some cardboard and some sellotape and some scissors. Make the future in as a model. And most people kind of go, ooh, I haven't really done that before. But it's it's all right. It's usually very helpful. But you do sometimes get people who are so threatened by that mm-hmm. that they leave the room. They just will not play. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's really interesting as well, because I was going to ask about the room, right? The, mm-hmm. the, who gets to go into the room, who gets to play, who gets to join the focus group? Uh, and there are kind of questions for me about how it already takes a lot of capacity and self-belief to turn up for a focus group to play. To co design, uh, I mean, this is all to co create. I mean, it takes self belief and capacity in the first mm-hmm. place. It also takes um, the institution recognizing that you exist, like who you are is valid to exist and to come into the room. So, yeah, so they're kind of, there's work, for me, there's work to be done before the focus group begins, yeah. before the play begins, right? Because, um, it's always a question for me about how do you create trust for people who, or for groups who are voiceless, not unrepresented or even subaltern, like just simply don't have a recognition within society as even a person, um, but exist as, but do exist, you know? And I think, um, you know, we don't have to be talking about the Dalits or anything like that, but because I also feel that there are, um, intersectionalities of subalternality as well. Um, and so, like, like, how do you even bring an issue to the board if you just don't feel that you will be believed or you will be gaslit, right? So it's like that already is like, I so therefore I will not even bother turning up for the focus group. Or often I attend focus groups or have led a number of focus groups where the uh, focus group, participants are selected for me, right? By the, by the organization. And I'm like going, oh, same people again. Uh, you know, like I've seen them in other first groups who've turned up. So they're not really, they seem to have a lot of self-belief to be able to represent the community, right? So the same voices uh, who seem to uh, have privilege as well. So yeah, so there are a lot of questions for me uh, around how we work out deep listing uh, from the organization.
2: But I, I, think I, mean? I, I think you're absolutely right. But I think that's to do with, with the the the, um, the the confidentiality issue. That if you ask, if you give people the opportunity to answer questions privately, where the answers come back into an anonymous pool, which we, the consultants, analyse, we can then go back, having analysed lots of different points of view and we don't know who they're coming from and we don't know who you know where they are in the organization feeding that back to to the management particularly but to the rest of the organization can be very cathartic and if you've done that first before you go into the playroom um the play becomes much more Productive, I think, because they, they people accept. Okay, well, I thought I was the only one who thought this place was shit, but actually, lots of people think it's shit. How can we make it better?
1: <laughs> I think beyond the kind of, I think that the, the 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 sort of there's a there's an element to which which the, the there's a balance to be struck between being able to speak in confidence and know that you there are no negative consequences for you for speaking up mm-hmm. um, but on the on the flip side it's also about visibility so if you have a legitimate uh complaint or if you have a limit, legitimate sort of issue with something um but you don't feel like you have a voice yeah it's also an issue of needing to be able to be seen to have a voice and um, mm-hmm. that your voice is is given that space um So it's finding that balance between allowing someone to have, um, to to move beyond that fear of 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 negative consequences for for stepping into a a space that they don't feel that they belong, Um, but equally recognizing that if they step into that space, um, that they will be seen, they will be heard, they will be, you know, how do you how, I think that that that's often the kind of the real tension there, um, that. People won't step up because they just don't feel visible. Well, how have we um,
3: tackled that with our programs at FACT with um, either veterans or or prisoners who often feel they don't have a voice they need? Well, They they have, you know, we've run very successful participation programs, haven't we, with those communities? So maybe share a couple of techniques we use there to create that that safe
2: space.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... A lot of that is to, is is to do with thinking through what our duty of care is in in those situations. Thinking through um, what it means to have access to, to to those communities and what those communities actually want from us. So you know, with with the veterans that we worked with in the criminal justice system, a lot of it is to do with. Um, not focusing on their identity as veterans within the criminal justice system, but it is about what they need from the systems that they find themselves in um so it's it, it's about sort of giving the opportunity for that voice um, to 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 speak and and really the, the strongest way in which that's happened is is through through that collaboration with artists it's through the collaboration with artists and collaboration with um, the individuals who who support those those veterans on a day-to-day basis. So it, it's about building partnerships and it's building about those longer-term relationships and partnerships um, and not simply parachuting in and out of the situation. Um, I think it's also been about using art
3: and, and digital art as a new vocabulary to broker the gap as well, hasn't it? Um, yeah,
1: and and it, it, I think it, it's sort of using... Um, Visual language as a, a, a way of developing skills that aren't necessarily conventional skills learning. It's mm-hmm. it's about sort of the skills to be able to talk about yourself, the skills to be able to mm-hmm. um, position yourself um, in in a in a circumstance, um, mm-hmm. which are sort of you know about empowering, but not necessarily about empowerment. Um, it's it's about allowing people to 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 feel like they will be heard and be seen. Um, Jack, I don't know if you want to say something about, about yeah, this, because you, gonna, you've been involved yeah. in a lot of these projects.
0: I, well, I mean, like, I just want to say that, like, I think art is an empathetic medium, right? So it is, I mean, we call it visual art or, uh, you know, uh s- Audio art, or whatever, but actually, art is for me, at its core, is uh, is its medium is empathy. It's about understanding and working with social relations and perceptions and senses and sensibilities. So, I mean, it's like so. it, It it kind of it's an it's a it's a medium that it's a discipline that relies on empathetic language uh, at its broader sense um so so definitely and i think you know like um so a lot of that that we've been talking about so far has been almost as if it's the on the onus of the person to speak mm-hmm. up you know so and and what i'm really glad to hear about with these uh, later projects that these projects that you described is that fact is taking responsibility to have the onus to build that trust, to kind of, to initiate, because often people don't have the capacity to speak up, you know, even if, uh, or have the ability or capacity uh, uh, to build tr- trust or have time to build trust. So it is really uh, on the on the role of the institution, I feel, to, 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 to make that first step. And because I think trust is, you know, like trust, I feel like trust leaks all the time. Like you, you build trust and then it leaks like there's like an entropy of trust, you know, because like, like I mean, human beings are like social animals, right? We've got to keep building to keep it topped up, basically. Like, like we've got to keep grooming each other like, uh, like like great mates do, right? Just to reestablish a trust every morning. So, it's I feel like institutions need to do that with their communities, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so what were we, so, uh, 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 Maitri, what were you asking about the digital? Um, well,
1: I think I think it. I'd be really curious to, to hear more about your experiences of, of working in participatory projects and and thinking through what that means of you know not just in terms of your own art practice, but how do you deal yeah, with the, right. the, the people that you are then collaborating with?
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, because I so I've just finished this like eighteen month, almost two years project with fact right like we we i got to know the learning team the first email was in october two years ago uh and i've never been to fact i mean that's the weird thing i've had this two-year relationship uh making an artwork with fact i've never been physically to fact and that was really because we started this project and then coronavirus hit and then it meant that everything had to go digital um and at that point it was really like Um, do I trust these people to help me um, produce something that's a socially engaged community project with intergenerational group of co-creators entirely online Um, and I think it was that kind of oh yeah I know the learning team well I've had connections with the learning team uh, over three months and I just thought yeah I do trust them, they they, they seem to say the things that resonate with me. And, I mean, they, they said the right things and I said the right things, obviously, but it's more than that. It's like somehow, even though across distance through the digital, you can get a sense of a person and you can get a sense of a team. Uh, and so you kind of trust that and see if that works out or not. Uh, yeah, and then really relying on the team on the ground to, to develop. Uh, to broker the relationship between me and the participants in the community, and so I trusted the team's existing pre digital relationships with uh with your your communities and then being able to broker that relationship between me and them uh, so I think there was a number of there were a number of kind of assessments I had to make about whether this project would work or not um, yeah, and that was both to do with the kind of understanding of the institution uh, and just the people, you know, the people themselves, you know, because I'm always, like, aware that the institution is one thing, then the people themselves are another thing uh, as well, you know, so the institution may do things that I disagree with, but then um, I'm also aware that there are individuals inside uh, as well uh, who yeah so the, their trust on different levels uh, working there
1: I mean there's there's a question that's just come in into the chat, which I think speaks to this a little bit about who gets to be empowering um, and you know I suppose it's it's understanding that distinction is there a distinction between as you say the institution between the individuals who are part of that institution how do you trans how do you transform? Um, that relationship, so that um, it doesn 't feel like it's the the same um, the same voices who are taking on this kind of um this this role um of of reaching out to so you say that, that on one side that the institution is the one that kind of needs to do more of the sort of they have the capacity to do that reaching out, and yet if the institution is part of the problem um how do you overcome that?
0: Uh, yeah, I think I think for my recent work, the recent campaigning work with the Centre for Chinese Contemporary Art, I, I now begin to realise that um, there is more than one empowering, that, that there are empowerings going on um, and that um, because of the structures of the institutions, they're meant to be accountable to the community, especially charities. They are meant to be. So um, Um, I think the board does the empowering. I mean, the board's the one that governs institutions. Uh, Then there are empowerings within, uh, like, you know, the director or senior members of staff do some empowering. I don't know what empowering means, like in this question, but I also know that uh, when us as artists, we organize, we can also empower ourselves in holding institutions to account. that's extremely exhausting um because it's all unpaid work as well but um i i think i don't think we're without power but it's just about negotiating power balances to
1: me i mean the, the the question of accountability is obviously really crucial here because um because trust the, common, the, the, the kind of the, the sort of flip side of trust is accountability that if you it's impossible mm-hmm. to have trust unless you have accountability um, and so I think then one of the, the, the sort of the questions that we've kind of we touched on previously is about representation um who 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 are the people um, that do that are are responsible for, for accountability so within governance and how representative Um, those structures are of uh, the people who would want to hold us to account. Um, So where, you know, does this kind of drive towards, um, is there a way in which we can start to think about governance in a more intersectional way so that it is more representative of the people that um, would want to hold us to account, you know, or would want to hold institutions and the kind of the, the sort of the work that they do to account what's the kind of process in which we kind of bring that bring that change about it's
3: interesting i think a lot of the um governance we have to execute as a as a board um comes from outside ourselves it's it's imposed by regulation it's imposed by various oversight bodies whether it be arts council england the charity commission local authorities <laughs> uh, corporate role the financial services authority or, or Offgem, gem off what or if any other off <laughs> that exists um so you kind of in, as, a, as a board member you you inherit a whole framework you have to live within um The way you apply that can be done in different ways. Um, You you can inject a level of of creativity, a level of of co-creation and consultation, I think, um, and and have open, safe discussions around that fabric and what it means for the organisation. But you are are fairly restricted, actually, um, just because of being a charity, being a limited company, um, being an arts organisation. So it's, it's a very difficult position to, to be in, and I know, you know we at FACT have challenged ourselves on how much time we spend on that formal governance in our board meetings versus really experiencing and understanding the, the art we, we create, and the learning experiences we deliver, and, and our different audience and stakeholders. And we're doing about 50-50 now, aren't we? Uh, matre and that's been a real shift for us in the last couple of years and I think by not minimizing that formal governance but actually doing that really efficiently um and getting onto the real heart of what we do, it's brought the board closer together it's brought the board and the senior management team closer together um I think we do have a closer connection to to our beneficiaries um the breadth of them. And, um, and through that, we've spotted where we have gaps in our, our own diversity and we've been fixing that through you know, latest appointments, for example.
0: So, uh... yeah, But you know, Rachel, I was just thinking about what you're saying about how a lot of that is coming from the outside, right? Like mm. we don't, we, we're constrained. But then I, I remember thinking, I used to work for the General Social Care Council, which is a social work regulator, now defunct. I was a clerk to so the tribunal. Um, and I realised that you know, regulators aren't perfect. They're just made of human beings like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you're off gems and off what's in the arts council. They're just made of human beings like us who are just like themselves trying to work out their own practice, right? Work mm-hmm. out what it means to regulate, what it means to 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 make other organisations do things. And I kind of feel like um, like it would just be so helpful if they we, we didn't treat them like a kind of perfect thing right that we could all we're always in co-creation with them about the rules that they make us follow you know like i just kind of feel i mean i i know they don't behave like that it's like they're very like this right um uh, i'm shaking my my finger i'm wagging my finger here but i mean i they they are not perfect you know um and i just kind of think is there a way in which the arts council or other councils need to be open with the organizations they fund or that they regulate that we're all kind of muddling through a little bit doing the best we can based on the best knowledge that we've got to date you know um mm-hmm. yeah.
3: yeah it's a little less ivory tower and sort of uh, yeah, yeah an openness yeah. To, and to have a dialogue around how we can improve together uh, yeah together,
0: isn't it? and also like maybe like you know i'm working with just some great organizations at the moment that are like for example, uh, well, I can't, I can't say, uh, but uh, um, who are like just saying, okay, here are the Arts Council's investment principles, but we're going to actually do better than what they're requiring us because mm-hmm. we we've got a different standard for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's like saying, oh, you know, we'll feed back to the Arts Council that you're not good enough because actually the, the, the standards that we want to achieve are for a better society, you know, m- way better than what the Arts Council has imagined, you know, which is so inspiring. Uh, uh, yeah, so like kind of like maybe like like, kind of um, managing up, shall we say.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've recently been involved in in creating um, a new body of, of, of law um, looking at how we protect the rights of children online mm-hmm. in the digital world because the internet presumes that everyone is equal. Well, of course, a child is not equal to an adult. They shouldn't be exposed to the same things. Do we have a a, a bigger responsibility to protect their privacy, their data, their right to not be addicted to services or or consuming uh, digital artifacts online, for example? And just going through that very formal process and consultation process of creating a, a code of practice for organizations that create digital services that they have to comply with to make sure we're keeping our children safe has been fascinating because we've we, you, we get gathered a very broad set of, of international academics, you know, great thinkers, practitioners like me in the technology space, representatives of companies who create these services, and, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of research, of discovery, of, of discussion, consultation. And yet at some point you have to say, okay, this is, this is as good as we've got it and we have to now release it into the world and see how people apply it and how it does achieve the outcomes it's set out to achieve and it went live two weeks ago we get to see how it really does change the behavior of, of organizations creating digital services but you, you yeah there's a point where a law or a code is struck and then it seemed to be perfect
1: mm-hmm.
3: in its form in its intent mm-hmm. but it can't be because you're, you're just doing the best you can with the knowledge you have at that moment in time so the fact yeah. that, that laws and codes and regulations and frameworks stay static often for, yeah. for hundreds of years, in some yeah. cases, is the yeah. problem, isn't
2: it? Yeah, and I no, think-
0: just, just the thing there about law, because you've hit on my pet topic, uh, <laughs> which is that they do stay static, but actually they don't, right, because they also entropy, like, you know, like, um, uh, there are like loads of laws now which are still on the statute books, but nobody... Yes. Uh, uses them anymore. Like mm-hmm. you know, you can what? What is it? Like you shoot a Welshman in Tester between the hours of midnight and dawn, and it's fine. You know stuff exactly. like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: not Chester. No.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so in case I, law, we it, but as, as a as a body of, of written law which is supposed to build trust in the system that they're fairly
1: static aren't they
0: yeah
1: yeah i mean I, th- I think there's there's a really interesting point about um the relationship of of trust and rules and how useful rules are as as both kind of forms of governance but also something to butt up against and be like this is a kind of creative dissonance that you can use the you can fight the rules um creatively. I've um, had a couple of questions in one I think I'm gonna sort of put out generally but maybe direct towards Jack which is when artists are invited into institutional reform should they be making art and how can we make that exchange fair? Um, and and then the second question which is around um, the maintenance of trust with institutions. What kind of infrastructure could help maintain, for instance, the community engagement and allow for sustained relationships that are nurtured, uh, rather than a kind of performance of engagement that checks certain boxes. Um, so there's a there's a kind of longer term strategy around around trust and and working um, beyond the inner workings of the institution. But Jack, do you want to kind of talk a little bit about your own? <clears throat> processes around the residency within the board?
0: Uh, Well, in terms of, in terms of what's the first question? When uh, do they make art or?
2: Yeah. Okay. Should you be making art? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, We should be making art. Absolutely. Because (laughs) artists have to speak from their expertise, you know, and, and where our expertise is making art. So I'm not a management consultant. You know, I do not come in with that expertise. My, expertise. my expertise is to be an artist. I think the problem is that um, then when you're brought in to be artists and to offer artistic insight, and then this is what happened, actually happened, you find out that a consultant has been brought in to do exactly the same role, but paid double what you're paid. I mean, that's the problem as well, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. sometimes artists are not even paid, right? So it's like, oh, we're doing the same job, but why are they being paid double our rate? So, I mean, there's some issue there about uh, uh, management consultancy rates uh, not the same as artistic Artists Union England rate or Scottish Artists Union rates. So I think that's kind of the issue I I kind of want to have with the unions and just say you need to recommend a separate rate when artists are brought in for management consultancy purposes, even though they are here to be artists, you know? Uh, so, yeah, so I think the rate has to be different. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was the second bit? Uh, the,
1: the, the second was about uh, sustainability of, of of projects where, uh, you know, I think, and th- this is something perhaps speaks to the ways in which institutions work with um, different groups uh participatory groups and community groups is about that sustainability of, of engagement so you you go you build a relationship with a group of people um, and then as soon as the project's over oftentimes the institution disappears um, and i suppose that so how do you get overcome that who's responsibility yeah. how do you maintain those relationships yeah. um
0: I, a very simple answer from me is whether the institution sees itself as a member of the community or not. Yeah. So, you know, so if you do, you would continue. Even the project end, you, you'll be have another project that is about yeah. being a member of that community, basically. I'm very wary of, like, biennials and festivals where we, we kind of, like, get parachuted in, work with community, and then we go, go again. But I don't think facts like that. I mean, facts meant to be, you're part of Liverpool, aren't you? You're part of a member of the community
1: yeah and and the the work that we do with young people outside of the organization you know we work with you know a consistent group of of people over a long period of time, so there's been a lot of yeah. thinking about who who are the organizations that we need to be supporting and partnering with, and who are the young people that we 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 work with and keeping those relationships going for as long as they want to keep those relationships going um you know it's it's a it's a kind of question of mutual need isn't it um that you want to support each other for as long as it's a kind of useful relationship
0: yeah but i just want to add there though that your community isn't just the people who you're currently having a program with right it's it's the whole of liverpool everybody who's who thinks they have a right to kind of come into your door you know they they 're all your stakeholders
1: absolutely and there are, there, are, there are obviously people with whom we have closer working relationships, and you know those are different levels of engagement, I suppose, so everyone is our stakeholder. everyone in the city who wants to is someone that we have a relationship with but um on the flip side, there are some people with whom those relationships run deeper and longer um and that's that's also okay. That's also a sort of a question of choice. Um, I think. Could could I just add something in there because I, you
2: mentioned money um, and rates, and it's uh, a really fair point. I I just interject to say that um, I never call myself a management consultant. Um, and what's more i certainly don't get paid management consultancy rates but hey i know that i'm sitting slightly in a better place than artists would to me often artists just get treated by as suppliers probably not as well paid as a plumber even but um i i do think that um one of the problems about really deeply engaging with communities, let's say, or even for that matter, with staff, although that's a bit closer to home, so it's likely to be more visible, is that most of the organisations that I work with are so stretched and so... their their resources are just at breaking point that you can't afford to do anything more than one or two focus groups with a dozen people in the city which is really not very representative of of anything it's better than nothing but it's not really very good so you, you you're coming up against an enormous challenge which is in organizations that are barely able to put on the shows they want to put on let alone anything else, how do you find the time and the money and the people uh, to, to create this dialogue with, with your community? Um, and I, I often feel that the work I do with communities is, is it's not tokenistic, but it's, it's really not nearly big enough. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really give us a very accurate picture of how people feel
0: do less maybe organizations should just do less and allocate more time to the trust
2: yeah but try saying that to your curator you know um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) or try saying that to the arts council or whoever's funding you right you've got to show that you're doing loads
1: yeah but and it's also i think you know one of the, the the sort of Questions that I think came up about visibility, about the work that we're doing. So much of that work is invisible; it happens behind the scenes, and mm. also that's there's a really good reason for it because actually, people, you know, this Jane, it comes back to your confidentiality point. That a lot of that work shouldn't be seen publicly because no. it needs to people need to be given that space to to um, to. to take risks privately, to, to work in a sort of closed closed environment and, and to kind of have, have their sort of, um, you know, it's, it's especially work, if you're working with young people, there's all sorts of safeguarding issues that you wouldn't want to have them exposed publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, so doing less is, is maybe one solution, but also being allowed to do things under the radar uh somewhat you know out of the public eye is also really important i think yeah um, and and that sort of helps to contribute towards um I, th- I think the sort of longer-term development of those relationships um because eventually people will want to step out from you know stick their head up above the parapet a little bit um of their own of at, at the time that's the right time for them so even is- there I think we can
3: do a better job of, of sharing the practices we're using and the outcomes we get from those practices without exposing the people we are safeguarding and mm-hmm. keeping that completely anonymous but I think there is a bit of mystique around a lot of what arts organizations do behind the scenes and I think the public and those that fund us would benefit from understanding the the you know phenomenal uh, innovative creative practices and processes we use to to drive the really compelling outcomes we do
2: yeah it really goes back to this sense of purpose thing what are museums and galleries for you know are they are they only there to safeguard the nation's treasures and to keep people who've got (coughs) PhDs and have spent their life researching things in jobs uh, is that is that what they're for, or I think the whole centre of gravity is shifting, but it can't shift that fast. I mean, I, ever since I've been working in the sector twenty years ago, you know, I've seen a massive shift away from the supremacy of the, of the collection and the and the curatorial staff, which is in itself problematic. Um, but if you really want to be part of the community and being a voice for the community and really doing things that change people's lives the balance of what a museum is for and how it gets funded is going to have to change really radically i think if that's what you want to do i mean maybe you maybe that's not what what governments want maybe they don't want it to be that and and they only want to spend taxpayers money on shiny shows and and fabulous exhibitions and all that all of which we love but at the expense of a lot of other stuff too
3: there's a great question on the chat around you yeah, have we seen any best practices uh, in terms of establishing and maintaining trust in art making spaces I wonder if jack or actually jane you've got some
1: examples that we could share i mean jack you've been doing an awful lot of work and thinking about what best, best practices might look like um but i don't know if we've you know I don't know if I've got any resources off the top of my head that would be easy to share. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, you know, like back, back to what you were saying, Rachel, about laws, right? Best practices are a form of law. They're kind of like uh, um, uh, a kind of uh, policy or they, they're kind of codification of a way of doing things. And I think, it's, I think the best practice is to always question your best practice uh, I, I mean, it's always about reflexivity and mindfulness, and learning to see, learning to see your blind spots. Uh, and if so, as long as we keep doing that, I think that for me is the best practice. Um, and 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 I, I want to go back to what Jane was saying, like what are museums and galleries for? Bra- best practice. If we can determine what they're for, that's what the best practice needs to point to, right? Uh, It's for that purpose. And we all have different ideas of what museums and galleries are for, but they are not, what they are for is negotiable between users, stakeholders, artists, and the government, and and people we work with. It's a kind of, it's a continual moving feast where we are constantly negotiating what museums and galleries are for. I mean, at this point, I think there's a pushback about what museums are for from the government. Um, But for me, it's like, no, it's for me. Museums and galleries are for me. You think it's for you, but no, they're for me, right? So I want a space in which I feel I can fit in. Um, And I feel museums, like, I feel... Art is a public good. It's like the NHS, like health is a public good. Art is a public good. So museums and galleries are like hospitals or places that create public good, you know. Uh, So I feel like a civil servant, you know, as an artist. I I create public, my job is to create public good and so are museums, you know. Um, Yeah, that's my take on it, really.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to wrap this up because we are reaching the end of our time. I did want to ask for final thoughts, but we've got 30 seconds. So, um, Jane and Rachel, do you want to add anything to follow up from Jack's? I, I,
2: I, I love your last comment, Jack, that you see yourself as a, as a civil servant, as an artist. I think that's a fantastic uh, generosity. And I thank you for it. <laughs> for me, it's all about
3: transparency. Uh, it's about being purposeful uh, and thinking about how we build trust, how we need to change the nature of it as so the world around us changes, and constantly check and look for signals that we're it's at the right level. We all are different stakeholders. Um,
1: anything else, Jack? Before we sign. No. Up?
0: Anything else from you, Maitri?
1: Um, no, but I've got lots of uh lots of things to think about. <laughs> uh thank you all so much for your time and your generosity in uh tackling such a huge subject. Uh Jack, uh thank you again uh for uh being our fabulous artist in residents. Uh to Rachel and to Jane. Uh it's been a real pleasure and an honour to talk to you both, all all. Um cool. Thank you very thank much. You. The next question uh, for today's Transformers Summit starts uh, in half an hour. Uh, so we'll, uh, the live stream will continue. Uh, thank you all very much. Thank That's you. Great great thank you the opportunity.
2: Lovely to meet you all again. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been part of FACTS Framework for Trust programme,
2: supported by Arts Formation. The rest of the programme can be found at fact.co.uk.